I mean, there are some weeks where there's so um, the text is sort of simple, and you just sort of walk right through it, and it's got a simple theme, and it's it's just everything is sort of like introductory. And then there are some weeks it's like mowing trees. There's so much going on at one time, and that's sort of where we're at tonight today. So if this is your first chance to really get into one of these in-depth Bible studies, boy, you better pray for a spiritual stomach expansion. Because we are really looking at some girthy stuff. Starting in verse 6, that's where we left off. So let's look at that first. I'm sorry, we're in John chapter 14. Starting in verse 6, Jesus says this. And actually, why skip five verses? Let's just start from the beginning. I remind you, the last thing he said in chapter 13, which is really important, was he just said to Peter, Simon Peter, most assuredly, I say to you that the rooster shall not crow until you've denied me three times. Boy, who wants to be told that? And then he starts chapter 14 by saying, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not, so I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? So Jesus' response, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you have known him, and you've seen him, or you know him and have seen him. And Philip now responds. Notice this is one of those chapters, one of the few places where several disciples seem to sort of pipe in because they're just not getting it. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, and it doesn't almost sound like he's almost hurt, have I been with you so long, and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How could you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Now believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or at least, or else, believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he that believes in me, or he who believes in me, the works that I do, he'll do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Son, I'm sorry, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. And in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me, will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now Judas, not Iscariot, the third guy that's speaking in the chapter other than Jesus, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Then Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you, which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now these things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you remembrance all the things that I said to you. A peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise. Let us go from here. Let's pray. Oh, such a girthy, thick, stakey chapter. 
feel like there are certain chapters, God, in certain places where it's like Brazilian barbecue. It's just so full. And this is one of those places. And God, there's just no way that a thousand years could give justice to all the beautiful and deep implications that play off in this chapter. From the emotional context of your son, father, and what he's trying to communicate to the absolute ignorance and confusion of the people he's speaking to that he's going to hand the baton to shortly. To Judas, who's out at this particular moment gathering troops to go and arrest you, Jesus. To the religious leaders who feel like they're finally solving this problem of this renegade, loose cannon religious leader who just won't get in line with their system. To a multitude of people who are looking, even at a moment like this, for an idea of a Messiah that's very different from the Messiah you came to be. To people who are slaughtering a lamb that was the lamb that was to testify of their freedom for 1,400 plus years because of the Passover they were celebrating. Unaware of the fact that the Lamb of God, you, Jesus, were about to be hung on the cross to set them free from the one thing that every human being will have to face, the guilt and the shame that comes from our own sin. And in this chapter, people are freaking out for good reason. Lord, you know where we're at, so you know exactly how to steer this chapter to be a message we all could hear and understand. And that's my prayer today, that we would hear and understand, that we would get it. So Lord, please today minister to each of us now in this time. Redeem every second, I pray. And as we on this first Sunday in March 2018 prepare for communion, let today be a day our hearts are right and readied. And if there be any who have yet to know you, let this be the morning or afternoon of their salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name. Immerse me in your spirit. Come upon me now and do what only you can do. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Hey, I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Always search the scriptures. Always use the Bible to test all things. Because otherwise what you're going to have is you're going to have some guy that's sort of fancy in his speech that wears the lame coat and the nice whatever. And somewhere in it he's going to sort of hornswoggle you. And God never intended that. You need to have something to test all information. And he gave you his word for that. Now, imagine if you will, given this burden to recruit, to train, develop, and raise up disciples. People that are students, all disciples, masiticas, all it means is students. All in the clear knowledge that you're going to be going to the cross and they're going to go there. They're going to have to follow you there. And somewhere in all of that, you're going to have to die knowing Scripture is already foretold that they're all going to scatter at your arrest. But somehow, for the most part, will recongregate and there at the cross and watch you die. And you're telling them that you're representing an eternal kingdom. And then somewhere in all of that, of course, you know that you have to tell them that you're going to not only die, but conquer that death and raise again. When do you drop that bomb on them? Do you start with that? How many students do you think you would gather where it's like, hey, come to the school of getting crucified. Come to the school of getting mocked and spat upon. Come to this school of being the outcast from everyone. You know, the people that used to invite you to the party don't invite you to the party anymore. And you know, you tell, you'd be like, you know, I'd say no. I just want to be able to say no. I want them to invite me so I can say no. And it just feels weird that they don't invite you. And Jesus even says, blessed are those who are going to be, well, the words are like forsaken, persecuted, abandoned. Those aren't fun words. So when do you drop that on people? How do you get people to trust you so much that when you tell them the impossible, that you're going to die and raise again, that somehow there is a glimmer 
of hope inside them. He says, well, you know, he said it. Three different times up to this point, he has actually prophesied that he would die and resurrect. He said it up, by the way, for what, for what it's worth, up in Caesarea Philippi when he says, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, well, you can't have the Messiah without the mission. And he tells him, look, it, if you know that, then you better know why I'm here. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of the Gentiles. He, they're going to be spat upon. He's going to be mocked. He's going to, ultimately, they're going to crucify him. And on the third day, he'll raise again. And, of course, Peter blows a gasket like we would expect him to. But then up on the Mount of Transfiguration, as they head down from there with his three, if you will, the remedial course, Peter, James, and John. And as he gets to the bottom, he's going to have to tell him again because somehow after that point, they're always arguing over greatness. seems to me the two things the disciples do more than anything else is argue over greatness and try to stop people from coming to Jesus. Don't you think it's kind of weird to think? You're probably in good company. You think, well, I don't know if I could actually be a follower of Jesus. Well, he certainly dropped the bar for us, didn't he? And then once after the rich young, rich young ruler comes after him and, and says he would follow him, and Jesus wants him to drop all his gods, including that which he possesses. Jesus will reinstate a third time that he's going to die and resurrect. But it's interesting, he didn't start with that. He started with healings. But there is a radical amount, three quarters of the Bible, that were written before Jesus came to tell us what was going to happen. All we had to do was read it that we all like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all? I get it. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption, says David in Psalms. Psalm 16. After three days he will rise again. After three days my soul shall live, Hosea teaches us. But, you know, no matter how much we read that, that's so much easier to basically think that Jesus comes in like the rock. But somehow with like Stallone's attitude and he's full on full metal jacket with like Des and, and Troy and he just starts gunning down the enemy until all that's left is this super underdog Israel. But he came to conquer something so infinitely greater than Rome. It was Egypt 1,400 years ago when they started the Passover that called themselves the Eternal Empire. And then it was Rome during the time that Jesus is there walking on foot. Also calling themselves the Eternal Empire. But both for the, have come and gone. They both exist as kingdoms, if you will. But they're not the world governing empire they used to be. But every man stands before God in their sin. And up to this point, Jesus has dropped these hints and outwardly told them. But there's another thing he has to tell them. Not just that he's going to go to the cross, hang and be tortured to death and die and bleed in front of them and be completely humiliated and then on the third day raise again. But if after your resurrection... Know that the destination for this mission isn't actually just that, but to return back to the Father, Jesus' ascension. And somewhere in all of that, he's going to leave the ministry in their hands. When do you drop that bomb? Notice you can't drop that bomb before dropping the bomb about Jesus dying on the cross, because he says, unless you pick up your cross daily to follow me, don't even pretend that you're my disciple. The crucifixion, when he tells us, is always underpinned with the resurrection. It's imperative to note this. I'm sitting outside and I'm telling somebody about the gift of Jesus. I have to tell them about the resurrection. Because you know what the cross says to a person out there? Stop sleeping with your girlfriend. Stop getting stoned. Stop doing the things that you know God's not going to applaud. But if they think they're, not, they're just giving these things up versus trading, who's going to want that? The reason I gave those things up it wasn't because I felt like this was what I had to do for God, to be honest, because I knew that God offered better. God's not a God of Nazis. He's a God of instead of. 
And Jesus will always tell them if he's going to die that there's a resurrection. There is a life on the other side of that. So when you look and say there's something that needs to die, the good news is there's a resurrection on the other side that's infinitely greater. But when it comes to his ascension, which, by the way, this chapter is the first chapter where, if you, in essence, he drops that bomb. By the way, guys, I'm not just going to die and hang and bleed in front of you guys and raise again. Yeah, that's going to blow your minds. But I'm also actually going to leave. He's always going to buttress it with two basic points. One is that they'll never be abandoned. He's not leaving them alone. And the second is that he will return from His absence in sight will be temporary. So he begins to build upon this premise, precept upon precept. How Jesus teaches us now from chapter 14 through 16 is entirely unique to the Gospel of John. A guy who's sitting there listening to it and now recounting it 60-something years later. Then we'll get to chapter 17 and we get a private prayer that we get nowhere else in Scripture either. Chapters 14 through 17, we wouldn't know existed if it wasn't for John. We can thank him for that when we get there. Interesting, as we start to kind of develop this, you realize that this is one of the chapters more than any where the Trinity is just in our face. Have you noticed that? He's constantly mentioning the Father. He tells us, by the way, that the disciples have already acknowledged believing in the Father. And if they're going to believe in the Father, they should believe in Jesus. That's how we started the chapter, by saying, hey, look at you believe in the Father, you should believe in me. Let not your heart be troubled. He tells us that the works that Jesus does is actually the Father doing those works through him. That the things that Jesus says are the Father, is the Father speaking through him. So much so that the idea is, is that the Father dwelling inside Jesus does all the work. So in other words, the Father is the commander and the doer, and Jesus is the conduit. He's the performer. But it's the Father who's doing the work through him. The Father has made promises to make his home in those who would keep Jesus' word, to love those who keep Jesus' commandments, and to send his Holy Spirit to those who will do so. Jesus ranks the Father above himself, and then says that the Father has commanded Jesus, and for that, he's going to go and follow him. Don't miss that. In the simplest sense, in total, the Father's the doer, he's the commander, Jesus is the conduit and the servant, and the ultimate end of it all is simply obedient love. And Jesus develops a lot about himself. He acknowledges that if the disciples were to believe in the Father, they should believe in him. That Jesus, in the simplest sense, examples the Father. He examples in what he does, because the Father's doing it through him. He examples what the Father says, because the Father speaks to him. He's like, look it, if you've watched me, you've seen what the Father does, and if you've listened, you've heard what the Father says. Jesus is in the Father to example him, and the Father is in him to perform it. Because of this, Jesus is going to the Father, and when Jesus goes to the Father, if we're willing to trust Jesus, we'll not only do the same things Jesus did, but we'll do even greater. We'll develop that God willing in a moment. And if I'm willing to love him with an obedient love, Jesus, that is, in his commandments and in the word that he says, God has fantastic promises for me. First of all, that this helper God's going to speak of here, Jesus is going to speak of, another helper will come and that Jesus will not leave us orphans. We're aware that only one person can leave you an orphan. That's the Father. Jesus is speaking for what it's worth. Again, I remind you, the Father is speaking through him. Jesus will soon come for us. Is that something I can forget? Is it something you forget? Get trapped in the gray of this world and it gets nasty and we see the devil just running free here with no restriction. It's easy to forget that the Lord's coming back for you. The world will not see him, but the disciples will. Because Jesus lives, they will as well. And Jesus promises to love those who keep his commandments, to manifest himself to those who keep his commandments and to make his home in those who keep his word. And he goes so far to constantly remind us to the point where he'll say, if you don't keep my commandments, stop saying you love me. But wouldn't it be better if you just did what I, I told you? And again, the idea of it is, love is an obedient love. And then he says, I'm going to give you peace. But the peace that I give, and we'll see that he says it in two different words, is unlike the world's. There are apparently two pieces. There's the world's peace, and then there's God's peace. And they are very, very different. And in declaring himself lesser than the Father, he says this, that the rule of the world has nothing in him. 
Jesus is going to the Father, but first, the Father gave him a commandment, and he's going to go finish that. And that, of course, is the cross. Now, Mark tells us in chapter 16 that after Jesus finished paying for us at the cross and rose again, he, was, he rose, ascended, and sat at the right hand of the Father. Sat because the person who is at the right hand of the King sits when the job is done. The mission is complete. And he sits there waiting for all the enemies to be made footstools for his feet. Now Jesus says, now follow that example. Don't miss this. Jesus is obeying the Father and calling it love. And the Father is telling him to do something none of us would want to do. He's going to go get tortured to death to pay for our sins. This is Jesus' example. And he tells us now, I want you to follow me. And he says, look, if you are going to claim to love me, watch how I do it. I'm going to claim to, to love the Father, but I'm going to do what he says. Now, don't miss this. Because he's going to use two words, and one of them is the word keep. And the word keep is a guarding word. We'll get there in a moment. It's imperative to note here that as Jesus, as the Father is the commander, and Jesus is the conduit, he's exampled that in front of us because in just a moment, as Jesus ascends, he will be the commander and we will be the conduit. He goes, what you just watched is what's going to happen to you. In other words, you've been getting on the job training whether you knew it or not. So with that said, we'll walk through it, but there's one thing you go, well, wait a minute, but what about the Holy Spirit? And that's exciting because that's the part I want to develop in all of this glorious stuff that's in this chapter because people go crazy places with the Holy Spirit. And, and I only say that in this sense, that on one side it's like he is a license for lunacy and on the other side it's like they don't want to go anywhere near him. On one side he's an it and on the other side he's an it to be avoided. And then we get to what Jesus teaches us here and if we could just see what he teaches and understand my doctrine just comes from looking at the word and I realized when I started looking at scripture I couldn't help look at John 14 through 16 and this beautiful time of teaching as he's about to go get executed and he starts to tell us, he lays this out and I realized that all I did is I kind of charted it. What is the Holy Spirit called here? What does he do or not do? And then give me any other facts. And those are the three categories I'll see that we'll take a look at here as well. Now take a look at it with me. You'd say, well, that is the lengthiest introduction. Well, the good news is that helps me walk through some of the things because they've been established. Verse 7, if you've known me, you've known the Father as well. From now on, you know him and you've seen him. Philip, by the way, for what it's worth, is kind of the get-or-done guy. He's the guy that's sort of the how guy. And we get that through Scripture. Philip was the guy that in John 1 found Nathaniel. The first thing as Jesus recruits Philip, Philip goes and recruits someone else. He takes what he saw, that was his how, and he does that how himself. It was Philip, by the way, that in John chapter 6 was the one that clearly has already surmised the situation when Jesus says, how are we going to feed all these people? And he's like, well, you know, I've already done it in my head. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient that each one would have a little bit. He goes, I've already done this in my head. Philip's the how guy. He's the get or done guy. So Jesus is like, how are we going to feed them? He's like, I've already kind of laid it out. Here's the to-do list. Here's the shopping list. And it's clearly going to cost us more than we have. Philip was the one that when the Greeks show up, by the way, and say, hey, we really want to see Jesus. Interestingly enough, Philip goes and he finds Andrew. Now, why would he go find Andrew? Because Andrew's the inviter in Scripture. He's always inviting other people. The first thing we kind of see with him is he goes and he runs and gets his brother, and that's, that's Simon Peter. So it makes sense that it's like, look, at the get-or-done guy knows how sometimes they hand it to the guy who gets it done the way that it's supposed to. And in this case, it's like, can you imagine? Philip goes and he finds Andrew, and he's like, hey, there are Greeks who want to see Jesus. Andrew, you're the inviter. What do we do about this? He's the guy that gets it done. So understand, Jesus is like, hey, look, you've seen the Father, you know the Father, and, and, and of course, Philip blows a gasket, and he's like, uh, I don't get the how in this. And what Jesus says in the simplest sense is, since the Father is dwelling in me and doing things, guess what? You're going to see the Father in me. Which is imperative, because he's about to tell us that the Holy Spirit's going to dwell in us and work through us and it's the spirit of Jesus so that you people will see Jesus in you. But he has to set that precedent and he says, look it, you know why you've seen the Father? Because basically all the Father did is he threw on my skin and he started to do things. It was a jersey. And that's what makes it so beautiful. So, have you been with me so long that you don't even know who in the world I am, Philip? Look it, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
hey, look, if you don't believe I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, well, then at least you should look and see that I don't speak on my own authority. It's the Father who does the works. It's what happens, what he does, and what he says. I just, I love that. In other words, in the simplest sense, think of the pressure being off of Jesus to say the right thing because it's the Father's job. Think of the pressure off of Jesus to do the right thing because it's the Father's job. And yet somehow when we've decided we need to sort of put together our stratagem and then give it before God and ask God to bless it versus surrender ourselves in obedient love and watch what God does through us. There's kind of an exciting part of that. The difference is in the first case, it's all about our intellect. And in our second case, it's all about our ability. No, that's not true. It's all about our availability. Just checking to see where you guys are going to go with that. I'm looking. Believe me. Now, in and in. These sound like fancy things. Right? I'm in the Father. He's in me. This is like something from the 60s. Now, I'm in you and you're in me. And, and let's all play a zitar and stare at the wall. Consider this. If I were the dad of the situation, and I say that because I still feel a bit older than most of you, and I had a couple sons, Jaden and Daniel. Because after all, Jaden and Daniel, they look like me. I mean, they're just kind of my boys. Well, uh, and imagine it's like, and I'm sending them on a mission. I'm sending them on a mission, and there's two specific things about it. Now, it's the kind of thing where let's just say, let's just make it simple. I went and I ordered some food, but I ordered some food. We, we live in Greenwich. So let's say I ordered some food from the, the Vietnamese place. We happen to know the owners. Uh, they're just really, really sweet people. And I, Anyways. And, and it's like, okay, look it. You know, I called them up. Hey, John, it's really cool. Okay, we need some pho. And while we're at it, why don't you pick up, you know, why don't you give us a couple other things you can kind of decide in a bunch of really cool bubble teas. Oh, by the way, I'm going to send one of my boys to pick it up. Now, at that point, and I were to send Jaden... Jaden goes on a specific mission, but he goes in my name. And the reason he's going in my name is because I already have favor. There's an agreement that's already been worked out. And Jaden's going to show up there and he's going to be able to pick up the goods, even though he didn't have to pay for it. That was my job. He's simply running the errand at that point. For Jaden, let me say this, for Jaden to be in me means he gets to sit within my privilege and whatever benefits or whatever dangerous things that come with it. If you were one of my sons and somebody really hated me, it's a pretty good possibility they're going to have a problem with Jaden and Dan. I'm like, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to take out the whole family. Well, that's kind of what happens because they're in me, because they're in that. There's the idea. They're under that umbrella. And you kind of know that. On the other side of it, let's just go to our oldest, those of you who know our oldest, Shantae. 20 years old, super full of energy. I don't know where she got that. And... With all of that, super full of passion and vim and vigor, right? And of course, when people see that, they kind of go, wow, do I see your dad in you? There are qualities of me that are obviously passed down to my daughter. I look at, uh, I look at her and I praise God that when I look at her, she looks like her mother. And I say, praise God, that face you got from your mom. And I see your mom in you. There is power, if you will, in somebody being in you, if you will, and there is privilege in you being in them. And in that same way, that's what Jesus is saying, because then he's going to say it about us and Jesus. That we're in him and we're going to do things in his name, which means we speak under his privilege, but we also are responsible for his honor and his mission. And on that same vermicular token, he dwells within us to give us the power to very much do the things in which he calls us to. There's the cool part about it. So, There's nothing super mystical about it. It's actually rather simple. So, Jesus says, believe me, in verse 11, that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me, or at least believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Assuredly, I say to you that he who believes in me, and again, remember that, simply put your trust in him, that the works that I do, he'll do also. So, in other words, what Jesus is doing in front of me, I'm going to find Jesus is going to do through me. But he goes greater than that and says, but greater works then these will he do, because I go to the Father. Now, it's amazing where you can go with this. It's important to note the word greater. Now, greater doesn't mean bigger. Greater doesn't mean weirder or stranger or more different. 
It's supposed to mean, in the simplest sense, ranked of greater, if you will, ranked of greater honor or importance, but within the same category. Now, that is important to note. Because there are those that say, well, what did we do that Jesus didn't do? Well, by the time we get to Acts chapter 2, we're speaking in tongues. And of course, Jesus, we don't read doing that. That must be what he's speaking about. But Jesus didn't say different works than these you'll do. Jesus said greater works than these you'll do. So then what I have to do is I have to watch what Jesus did and then say, where do I see it happening greater than Jesus did it? Now, how in the world does anybody do something greater than Jesus does? This is God in the flesh. And so I look then at the book of Acts, and what I see is not much more different in the healings. It wasn't like they did anything any more monstrously different or greater that I could see there. Raising the dead? No, not really. Lepers? No. Casting out demoniacs? I mean, it wasn't like some of these things weren't happening, but it's hard to go and say, well, in Acts, clearly it's greater than it is happening here. So what in the world do I see different in the book of Acts that I don't see here? Well, there's one thing. And I remind you, this is God speaking. The Father speaking through Jesus. And in God's economy, what's the most important thing? In God's economy, what's the greatest denomination? Human beings. And in one given moment, at Shavuot, Pentecost, Jewish people from all over the world have gathered together. And on this particular day, Peter stands up, the same guy who had denied that he even knew Christ three times. And 3,000 people give their life to Jesus Christ. 3,000 people in a moment are converted from hell to heaven. That's greater. In the sight of God, and, and pardon me, and, I, and let me just rattle this tree for just a quick second and we'll move forward. Consider this, that in God's opinion, the greatest thing is not performing a healing on somebody because no matter how you heal someone, sooner or later you're going to have to deal with something else. Now, that doesn't mean God's not into healing, but healing is never the end in and of itself. According to the book of of Mark, at the end of it all, it tells us that God gave accompanying signs to confirm his word. There was always a message for which God wants to bring back up. It's amazing the church is like, we need more miracles. And God's like, I need more message. That's what I want to back up. I don't need to back you up because I already backed you up by dying on the cross for you. That showed how important you are to me. It validated you there. You don't need anything else to validate you there. But now I need you to go out into the world and preach the gospel to all creatures. And if you preach the gospel, I'll back it up so people could be convinced. That's not your job. That's mine. And I recognize that. Because to God, the most important thing is an eternal issue. Here's the problem. And again, I'm not devaluing healing. The problem is, no matter who you heal, we still all have an expiration date. So, Lois is having a really rough day, and somewhere in all of it, a dog comes over and bites her right on the calf, her right calf, And strangely enough, it's a rabid dog. So that means that Lois starts to look like something from I Am Legend and it gets all weird and she starts shaking and all this kind of crazy stuff. And as all of this stuff is happening, somewhere down the line, Julie sees her and in a moment of just abject bravery, she looks and goes, we need to get this girl to Jesus to heal her. And so she calls Marcy and says, I think this is a double time thing because I'm not sure if it's possession or it's just that she's being rabid, but she's kind of foaming and it's getting all weird. So, she, so, so somewhere in all of it, you know, clearly she's in a bad state. So Julie and Marcy go and they grab her and they take her someplace that, and someone comes and they pray over her. And as they pray over her, God heals her. But it may be her day to die. So now she's like, praise the Lord. I no longer have rabies. Glory to God. And she just starts celebrating. And as she's celebrating, she gets hit by a bus in the street and it's over. Now, what do we do with that? Do we look and we think God failed? Because somehow in it, it's like, what, are we trying to prove that God exists? Is that what we're trying to do in this? And the problem is, it's like, you know, I look at my grandma's 99. She's got gout. 
Her kidneys are failing. She's got dementia. You know, she's got, she's got blood pressure that puts her into a coma every other day. And on the off day, she has seizures. You know, and somewhere in of it, neither of her legs work. And one of her arms actually doesn't work either. Would you just pray because, you know, she's having, she's having a problem and we think she may have had a stroke. Would you just pray that God would heal her? Does she know the Lord? Yeah. And she's 99. Have you asked her? if she wants to be healed. Now, I'm not trying to be cold and I'm not trying to be uncool. But we get to this place where we get super hyper on this, God, you just heal everybody. But that's not the biggest deal to him because sooner or later, no matter how healed you get, something else is going to come. And either you're going to live at the hospital, but you're still going to have to deal with the eternity of standing before God in your guilt. Greater works, we don't see them in healings. We don't see them in what they say as much as what we see is that God says, let me show you, you're going to watch people get saved like you never saw with me. And you know why? Because Jesus will have been resurrected. He says, when I go to the Father, that's when you're going to get that power. And that's how you know that I'm with the Father, is you're going to get Him. Now, whatever you ask in my name, verse 13, that I will do. Oh, isn't that just a fun one? Because we sure have taken that one and made it like our own debit card. Now, it's sort of like abracadabra. You know, as long as you could say the magic words in Jesus' name. It's like, God, you know, it's like no matter what you're asking, you're like, oh, God, you know what? I'm going to go to this party and I'm going to go and and I'm going to try heroin for the first time. That seems kind of fun today. And while we're at it, we're going to do some MDMA and we're going to go run out into the streets. God, could you just keep me from getting arrested and ODing tonight? And somewhere in all of it, you're like, oh, and God's like, that's just nonsense. But then you're like, and you go, in Jesus' name. God goes, oh, now I have to do it. Isn't it crazy to think that we can go there? God, give me the car. Give me the house. Give me the whatever. In Jesus' name. Oh, and God's like, well, now we're contractually obligated. We have to give him the Bentley. But what does it mean to do something in Jesus' name? Let's go back to this situation with Jaden and myself, and Jaden's going and getting Vietnamese food. Now, the things that the people know at this Vietnamese store that have a relationship with us, is that they know that we love Jesus. They know that that's our heart, and it's our heart for them to know him too. Freaks them out a little bit, but at least they know that, and at least they have respect that we've not ever been covert about it. They're like, well, I don't totally understand it, but I appreciate the fact that, I mean, under what you're operating with, this makes sense, you obviously care. Imagine if Jaden kind of comes into this situation yelling, Hail Satan, and he's the whole time he's like kind of throwing curses at him and he's running, throwing chickens at them, you know, or chicken feet, you know, and he like comes in in a voodoo outfit and he's like, Wood, blah, blah, blah. and it's like somewhere down there, like you just, you really don't look like you're coming in your dad's name here. You realize if you're going to come in someone's name, you're going to come in their character and you're going to come in their mission. And what if, I mean, I mean, just, let's just start with the name, Yehoshua, Jesus. The name Joshua, by the way, one of the 11 most common names of the day. That's why they had to say Jesus of Nazareth, because it would be like saying, oh, I'm telling you what, God has raised up a Savior, Bob. You're like, which Bob? You're like, oh, Bob from Little Snoring. I mean, that's the idea. Yehoshua means God our Savior. If I'm going to do something in the name of Jesus, then I'm going to do it in the name of God my Savior, the one who saved me. Do you think that I'm going to do something in his name and then put myself into captivity? That just doesn't make any sense. You're probably aware of the fact that Christ is not Jesus' surname. It wasn't like Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph Christ. Christos is just a Greek word, and it's the Greek translation for the word Mashiach. Perhaps you've heard the term, because anyone who has Jewish roots, traditionally, or many who do, who then, you know, somewhere in it, accept the gift of Jesus, call themselves often Messianic. What that means is we actually believe in not only in the Messiah, but we believe that Jesus is that guy. I mean, this is the beauty of it, because Romans tells us, by the way, that though there's no advantage on either side of innocence, because we both stand guilty before God in and of our own self, God does give the Jewish person this benefit, that they have the promises and the prophecies that they sit upon. So let me explain it this way. And it's pretty obvious. We're just not going to get through this whole chapter. 
Bruno. He's going to go to Disneyland in this story. This is no promise. Although, hit him up if you want to. And while Bruno's going to go to Disneyland, he's going to take a couple people with him. He's going to take Agnes, because it would seem weird if he didn't. And while he's at it, just for fun, he's going to take Abraham. Now, here's the difference in it. Both of them get into Bruno's car, and they're going to drive all the way to Paris. And while they're driving into Paris, Bruno, seeking to be the romantic, is not going to tell Agnes, because it's just going to be a surprise. But on the other hand, he has told Abraham. He's told Abraham because it's cool to have one person to look back and go, and, and of course, Agnes is like, where are we going? Where are we going? He's like, someplace fun, rearview mirror look. Abraham gives that nod, smile. Now, of the two of them, Agnes and Abraham, which of the two may actually enjoy the ride more, the trip there? It's hard to say. It all depends on how much Agnes trusts Bruno, not only to have the best intentions, but to know her well enough that the place would be someplace she'd want to go. And the patience of Abraham, because Abraham, on the other hand, would be like, are we there yet? I want to be there. I want to be there. Are we there yet? I want to see Dumbo. I mean, that's, there's the opportunity. Now, understand, the idea of it is, is that he knows where they're going, and because he knows where, there's, where they're going, he gets excited about it. This is one of the benefits that Romans tells us that the Jewish nation has is that the prophecies tell them where they're going and they can be excited about a Messiah coming. Where the Gentiles, we kind of stumbled into it and gone, oh, wow, look at that, a Savior, awesome. By the time, here's the good news, by the time we're done with this story, both of them have wound up at Disneyland and they both can celebrate. Now, most assuredly I say to you, if you believe in me, if you trust me, you know how the Father worked through me, Jesus speaking, well, you're going to see that God works through you now. And whatever you ask in their name, I'm going to do that. But asking in my name is not in your will, but in mine. Isn't that how he taught us to pray? That the Father would be glorified in the Son. Don't miss that in verse 13. What that tells us is that if what I'm doing is actually so that I would be glorified in myself, it's not the end that Jesus is seeking. What Jesus is seeking is whatever you ask in my name, that I'll do that the Father would be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, in my name, I'll do it. And again, let me remind you, that's the fundament here. And with that, then Jesus starts to tell us how God is going to do this through us. And that's verse 15. As he starts to introduce to us the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to note that God has actually been telling us of the Holy Spirit clearly through the last three Gospels as he gets us to the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of Luke super emphasizes that because in focusing on Jesus as a human versus John on Jesus being God, one of the things that is necessary as a human being is the power of God's Holy Spirit to do God's will. And I love the fact that in the Gospel of Luke, two things that he's going to really emphasize is the necessity of the power of the Holy Spirit and the, the essential quality it is to actually be in prayer regularly or constantly, might I say. But it's important to note how Jesus introduces it. I'm only going to take us a bit of this and we'll go to prayer. But I look at what it says. If you love me, by the way, again, I remind you, Jesus is like, lay out this standard. If you love me, let it be an obedient love. Keep my commandments. Now, the word for keep here is in the Greek now, is the word tebejo. Can you try that word tebejo? Try it. It's Greek, so you have to kind of say it like you're shooting a gun. Tebejo. Try it. You know, like, uh, come on now. Tebejo. Try it. Tebejo. Now, let me give you two other words. Fulaso. Try that word. Fulaso. It's a little bit harder, but, and custodia. You know what word we get from custodia? Custodian, that was pretty simple, right? These are the three basic words for guarding in the New Testament. The word, and I'll go backwards, custodial means to be a custodian. In other words, it means to build a garrison around something. Like you would if you have something and now you've built a fortress to protect it. The emphasis on that is securing it through some other means. And you can do that, by the way, through a guard, setting a guard, for instance. They're your fortress, or human fortress, if you will. The word philoso, and the other two words are in regards to which direction 
something is coming. Fulaso means to keep from escape. So fulaso, in other words, you're guarding it in two different ways. One way you're guarding it because it's something like a criminal. That's the bad thing. In which case, you really don't want him out on the streets, respectively. But most of the time, fulaso speaks about something where what you don't want is you don't want someone to come in and steal it. Again, it's still going to leave. So you're guarding it from escape. And then there's this word, terejo, the word that's used here in this, word, in this verse. Terejo means to keep from invasion or pollution. It's something so precious, you don't want anything yet to be added to it. Now, pardon me for saying this, but I've learned this. Uh, because I think we're raised here in England with a lot of rules. Have you noticed that? It's like rules in areas that you're like, why did we even write rules for this? You know, but all the way back studying music as a kid, I remember that it was like there were figured bass rules. In other words, it was like back when everyone kind of wore powdered wig. Okay, we still do that, but, but not for music. Uh, well, that's people probably that do that too. But, uh, you know, and it's like and everyone kind of played something that was kind of like, you know, a harpsichord. They had all these rules about the way that you could write music. You couldn't take certain, um, certain uh, you know, sort of a, I can't even think of the word right now, uh, you know, certain spaces and things, and you couldn't continue to move them in that, you know, and uh, you couldn't, there were certain tones you couldn't play together, uh, and they would have these modes, and if they had these tones in there, they called it the devil's mode, because, in other words, it didn't sound good, and if it didn't sound good, it must be of the devil, you know, you know how God is, and you know, and you get the idea, somewhere down the line, we get, we write so many rules, and we try to add God into it, and it's like, if we don't like it, then it must be satanic, have you learned that? Uh, it's amazing, because there's lots of things you may not like, you may be like, Brussels sprouts are clearly from hell. No, I don't know. But I mean, the idea is you just don't like it. But God isn't like, just because something doesn't match your taste doesn't mean it's actually evil. Because what you're going to find is you're going to read a lot of scripture and it's not going to agree with you either, naturally. It's going to tell you to do things you don't want to do. And it's going to tell you to stop doing things you want to do. And in both cases, God goes, just because you disagree with it does not mean it's not true. I remember somebody telling me, when you get older, you'll, you'll like start gaining weight and you'll start losing your hair. They're like, watch, wait, what, watch what happens when you turn 30. Now, I know what some of you are already thinking. Wait a minute, he turned 30? No, anyway. Uh, and I was like, oh, and it didn't happen. And I'm like, ah. And then like 35, you watch, 35. And you're like, ah, and I hit 35. And I know, again, you're even more of me. 40, ah, 45. Ooh, okay, it happened. And the idea is, is, like, I didn't like that that was sort of a standard and it was going to happen. And it's amazing. Gravity starts to win. Your pecs wind up in your stomach. I don't know how that happens. But it does. And your hair, it actually doesn't leave your head. It just makes its way down to your nose. It's weird how that works. Yeah, that sounds, I painted a pretty picture, didn't I? Now, the point of it is, is that just because it's true, just because I don't like it doesn't mean it isn't true. You cannot like gravity, and you you know, and you start singing old R. Kelly songs. But if you jump off the building, you will not believe you can fly for long. And the point's simple: just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not of God. Now, just because you don't like it doesn't mean it is of God either. Remember when, if you're anything like me, that if a food didn't taste good, it was probably good for you. And what I've learned is there's a lot of food out there that don't taste good that also aren't good for me either. But something happens in this beautiful country of rules. We have to break them somewhere and we feel like rebels to do so. And somehow that happens in the culinary world. Like you take this recipe and it seems like it's everything. Now, coming from California, forgive me, I'm a very you know, closed-minded when it comes to smoothies. Smoothies involve fruit. Uh, and it was sort of like you got this food and this food and this food. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And then it's like beets and pickles. And it's like, what? You know, oh, well, let's throw a fish in there. I mean, it's like, uh, unbelievable the things that wind up in there. No, no, please. No, I'm not trying to insult. It's just a different taste altogether. But somewhere down the line, I'm like, it was good. And it's like, I feel like somewhere down the line, they're starting to make a smoothie and they're throwing it like these fruits. And I'm big. I love that kind of stuff. And then I want to just throw myself on top of the blender and say, stop. It's good like it is. Don't add any of those fish things or coffee or things that don't make any sense to it at this point. And put the celery down, for goodness sake. And, it's, and, and again, if you like that, that's cool for you. To me, the moment you start adding vegetables, it becomes a salsa. Now, and again, that's a California thing. The point is, somewhere down the line, you're guarding it. Because you're like, it's good now. 
don't add anything to it. And it's a, you're guarding it. I think of that with my children. How do you guard your children from the nonsense that's out there? It's the word that's used here about his commandments. Jesus, if you really want to love me, stand guard of that. Don't, he's not saying don't let him escape. He's going, don't let him get polluted. In our last couple of minutes, please hear me on this. This is how we stop doing what God called us to, but still think we're actually obeying. As we just add a little something that really isn't or isn't supposed to be in the recipe, and it's enough to so change the taste that we feel like we're okay. God's like, hey, don't steal. And you're like, well, what is stealing anyways? And so when an archbishop stands up and says, well, you can take things from Herod's, because after all, with the prices they charge, it's clearly that they're stealing from you. So is it technically stealing if you're stealing from someone who's stealing? Though in that statement, he said stealing. It's still stealing. Is it technically adultery? If, and, you, and it's like, you know, we become all situational. And it becomes so convoluted and so confusing, you don't even know if you're doing what's right, even if you maybe are doing what's right. And Jesus says, what if we just guarded it? In other words, what if you just read Scripture and it said, well, this is what it says? So what if it just said it, we should just do it or not do it because he told us to do it or not do it? Isn't it amazing? If you find something, let's face it, if you get in a head-on collision with truth, one of the two things is going to have to give it's amazing how many times truth becomes the victim there. And you know, all you have to do is go online. I know Jesus says this, but I'm sure somebody online can explain how Jesus says don't do this, but somebody online is probably smart enough to tell me how to do it and still not feel like I'm doing it wrong. Okay, well, maybe Paul said it, but Jesus didn't say it. But Jesus said, if they listen to you, they listen to me. But just the same, well, it's Paul, and Paul hates girls, and Paul's, you know, he's a fascist, and Paul's all of these other things, and, and he's, you know, he's a, he's a racist, and he's, oh, it's amazing. And therefore, if Paul says it, well, clearly it doesn't bear the same weight. And you're going, well, wait a minute. Isn't it amazing? So now you realize what happens. The moment that happens, the Bible no longer comes, becomes the expert, but some guy you've never met, that's probably sitting at home in his mother's basement somewhere writing this particular article and you're like, I'm going to trust this guy because in the essence, my flesh wants it and he's going, yeah, see, look it, it's okay. But Jesus says, guard my commandments. Because if I say it, I mean it. So when he says, you know, you guys should love one another with a selfless love, putting other people in front of you, and you're like, yeah, that was cultural. It was cultural? Because let's face it, back then they were more selfish than we are today. Jesus said, and he goes, now guard it. How about forgive? Or love your enemies? And do good to those who faithfully use you? And you go, oh no, well up to a certain point. Because then after a certain point, well wait a minute, I didn't read that in the text. You know why we do that? Because someone... We're even in our own self. We go, well, I'll do it up to this point. So how do I make it seem like it's okay if I only do it to this point, but this is what Jesus said? And we get to the point where we're not even sure what Jesus said anymore because we've already put our own addendums on things. It's like God laid out the commandments and we, we wrote our own Bill of Rights. And listen, to close this up so we can pray and have communion. And it's cold in here, isn't it? Yes, I'm really sorry. I don't know what we're gonna next week. We'll just start setting chairs on fire. Just gonna keep that. Oh wait a minute, we're recording. Uh, anyways, I, I mean that metaphorically. Uh, <laughs> listen to this statement. If you are willing to guard my commandments, when was the last time you just read the Bible and you went, "What it says, it is." And you're like, well, I don't get this one thing. Yeah, but it's amazing. But what you did get, you'd rather ignore for the thing you don't get. Does that make any sense? It's like, I says, don't do this and don't do this. 
And then there's this thing that's more like kind of esoteric, and you're like, I don't get the esoteric thing. And we're like not listening to the other things. You know what that is? If you're a parent, you know. You're talking to your teen, and you're saying, all right, this is what needs to happen today. And then they like start staring off into space, finding something else to capture their attention so that they're not accountable for the information you're telling them. I learned so much because that's me when God's speaking to me. But if you're willing to guard my commandments, I'm going to pray to the Father for you. That he would give you, notice in verse 16, just this phrase to close. Alon Perakleton. Jesus does not say here, I'm going to pray to the Father and he'll give you a helper. Don't miss that. He says, I'm going to pray to the Father and he's going to give you another helper. Here's a general rule. You can't have another if you didn't have one in the first place. Is that fair? If Bruno's like, I'm going to go get another car, there'd be a part of me that would think, well, what happened to the last one? It would be weird for him to say, I'm going to get another car, and he's never had one. Right? So if, and again, alone just means, if you will, another, and it's of the same type. Parakleton, paro means beside, kalejo means to call, someone called beside. He goes, okay, let me ask you, if there is somebody else coming now to be called beside them, then who's the first person called beside them? It's Jesus. Don't miss this, because this is how the whole hammer drops. Jesus goes, look, if you're willing to guard what I say, I'm going to talk to the Father for you. When I talk to the Father, he's going to give you another helper. Now, remind you, Jesus is already saying, I'm leaving. Don't worry, I'm coming back. But we don't hear the coming back because we hear your, wait a minute, I gave up everything. I left my nets, my dad, my boats. I left my 401k or 501k or whatever k. I left all my cakes. All my eggs are in your basket. How could you leave? He goes, don't worry. What you see, now look at, you saw the Father because the Father spoke through me and did through me. Can we agree on that? Okay, good. Now, therefore the Father must be here. And Jesus goes, as I leave and I'm going to go to the Father, I'm going to talk to him and he's going to give you another helper. One like me. The only difference is what you saw happen, what you saw me do to you, now you're going to see me do through you. My spirit's going to dwell inside of you And as my spirit dwells inside of you, I'm going to speak through you and I'm going to do through you and you're going to know I'm there. You just won't be able to see me the way you do right now. But you will soon. That's going to come. But I'm going to manifest myself in you. You know what I need you to do for that though? Guard my word. Because what I don't want you to do is so tweak what I've already challenged you to do that you'll want my power to do your will versus mine. That's just not cool. Here's the weird part. Jesus is like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and die. I'm going to give my life to give life to everyone else. And guess what I'm going to ask you to do? The same. Real love is give your life to give life. Now, I'm not telling you jump in front of a bullet or push somebody out of a bus. You just might, you know, you just might do that. No, pushing them out of a bus not to be mean to save their life. But... In a situation, the whole idea of it is, is it's, you know this, it's so much easier to do the three-second heroic thing to, than to live a heroic life. But that's what Jesus did in front of us, is he lived a heroic life. And he goes, now I'm going to challenge you to do that. And you go, that is impossible. And he says, yeah, for you it is. That's why I'm going to have to do it through you. Because I'm not leaving you guys that way. And I'm not going to leave you orphans. And again... Can you see for a moment the Father just taking total control and saying, Jesus, you've got to tell them this. I'm not leaving you orphans. You are not getting abandoned. The only difference is what you saw in front of me is going to just start happening inside you. And here's the crazy part. When it starts happening, when he starts happening inside you, greater things are going to happen than you even saw in front of you. So you better get ready for that. Now as we go to prayer, let me ask you, This whole in Jesus' name thing. Are we willing to follow Jesus and take up our cross and follow him? Or are we going to just say, well, you know what, Jesus, you could just be the great biblical bellhop and as long as you rescue me from hell, we're cool. 
In other words, I will gladly take you as Savior. I'm just really not hip on the Lord thing. Here's the problem. Scripture demands lordship. And this is always going to be the problem with every one of us. I, to me, I think anyone's absolutely daft to refuse the gift of Jesus if all they think it is is to get out of hell free. Who wouldn't want to hedge their bet that way? Oh, sure, Jesus died for you. Sure, I'll take that. I mean, I was raised poor. So if you offer me something for free, I might just take it because I'm naturally prone that way, even if it's something I don't need. Some of you might be like that. If someone's like, hey, I'll give you a free kick in the shins, I'll be like, sure, as long as it's free. I mean, I'm just like that. So, you know, you're at some place and you're like, would you like chocolate with that? Of course I would. Do you like a biscuit? Sure, I don't even know if I'll eat it, but I'll, I, yeah, of course. And the reason I say this, if you're like, hey, would you like Jesus to save you from hell? Sure, of course I would love that. It's free, right? He's like, actually, it's going to cost you everything, but it cost him everything first. And then you go, oh, well, wait a minute, there's a cost involved in this. If I'm going to really follow him and be, my, be his disciple, am I really willing to hand it over that I could say as Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain? Because I could never honestly tell you to die as gain if I can't tell you honestly to live as Christ. So as we go to prayer, let me ask you, what's your Christianity? What's the sum of it? Is it just, Jesus saved me, now he's going to give me more stuff? Or is it, you know what? He didn't just call me to accept and receive. He called me to follow. But if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you know that's where it starts. It starts with a call to say, I'm going to the cross to pay for your sins because someone has to pay for it and there's only two options, you and me. And I love you so much, I would rather die than live without you. You're going to get that offer from anyone else? And he says, if you're willing to accept that gift and confess him as Lord, he's not only willing to save you, he's willing to give you a brand new life. That is the deal of the century. Or of all time, for that matter. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to say yes to that gift of Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and on the third day rose again. That is your offer. To confess him as Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, and watch him save you. And pick up your cross and follow him. But if you have picked up your cross to follow him, if you have said, all right, Jesus, yes, I am a Christian, and I'm willing to acknowledge that, I might have just challenged you now. Let it be so much more than thinking Jesus is supposed to get behind you, and yet you're telling him that you're telling everyone you're following Jesus. Because here's the good news. His Spirit dwelling in you from the moment you said yes, He put His Spirit in you. Ephesians 1.13, look it up yourself. And now that's what He's doing through you. He wants to do the same. Speak through you. He wants to do through you. That the Son would be glorified in the Father. People would go, you know what? That Old Testament God and the New Testament God or however you want to put it, they're really the same guy. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful text on this chilly room. Uh, and here we are sifting through the beautiful, I mean, I feel like we're kind of fly fishing in an ocean, kind of skimming the top. But my prayer is that as we do that, that we all would take time privately and get alone and let you take us deeper. And yet, Lord, here today, in this room, we are reminded that there's a cold world out there. We had a hint of sun for a moment, but there's still a cold world out there and it's waiting us. And outside these doors, there are going to be people who aren't going to applaud our decision to follow you. We need Jesus so much more than just to assume that you just kind of want to give us a gift and leave us alone. We want to follow you. We recognize in following you, we want to guard your word, your commands and your word. We don't want to try to twist it and torture it till it somehow fits our will. But we confess to you that we are naturally driven to want to do what we want to do. And therefore, Jesus, we recognize why that man has to die but in that, you offer us a new life on the other side. The cross is only a corridor. And I want to thank you for that. So in this room right now, I don't have to convince you. That's the Holy Spirit's job. If you have never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you think, well, I've gone to church. But going to church, thinking that going to church would make you a Christian is the same thing as 
thinking you could walk into a McDonald's and you'd become a Big Mac. Because it isn't about just going to a house. It's about having a relationship with a God who paid your price on the cross and rose again. And if that's you and you recognize it, you're like, I don't know if I get all this, but I get that. Just pray this prayer with me right now. God, I stand guilty before you in my own things. But if your Bible really does say that you paid for all of that on the cross so that all my guilt could be punished without me being eternally punished for it, I say yes. When Jesus died, my price was paid. And when he was buried, my filth was buried with him. When he rose again, he offers me a new life. And I say yes. Give me that new life. I gladly give you my old one. Transform me now, please. Pour your spirit into me. Make me yours. Jesus, lead me now. Lead me to where I could be a blessing. Lead me away from those things that take me down and lead me into those things that that bless others and bless you. Lead me to places where I could look and be amazed at how you speak through me and what you do through me. I just want to tell you I'm yours. I hand my life to you now. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our responses today. Cement that, I pray. Cement that in our hearts. And I pray for any of us, Lord, that we've been busy tweaking your word simply because we don't like what it says, even though it doesn't mean it's not true. Bring us back to that place where we would be guardians of your truth in a world around us that is so busy tweaking your word and trying to say, well, even if it says it, it doesn't matter. We don't have to understand it for it to be true, so we commit that to you now. And we just want to say, yes, Lord, give us the strength to do as you call us in this. In Jesus' name.